I've got a terrible Zoom background. It's quite interesting, no, isn't it? Good, Stuff though. going on. It feels like you're in a um, art museum in northern Spain. Yeah, it's a bit more interesting than than you kind of ordinarily see. Yeah. I think. That's, what is it in the in Bilbao? Is the Guggenheim. The Guggenheim, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which of the many we've abodes that you've used <laughs> in recent times? We've decided times, that you, he's in the Guggenheim in Bilbao. I'm in the Guggenheim in Bilbao. Because of the so. angles of the uh, of the ceiling behind him. It's an thoroughly professional. It's an, it's an except it's not carpeted properly yet. All right, so no, 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 nowhere in your houses. My, my no, that's not true. Is, we ha we have two oh, rooms that are properly oh, carpeted. Yeah. Well, where do you? Um, Gemma has a, a huge problem with the wires. That all of those things that you just described. Mm. Kate also very anti-wire. I don't know how. Don't but know how where, these people but, think that stuff happens. I'm thinking of uh, getting. You know the kind of thing that you had when you were a student, where you would just put throws on stuff to to cover up no. a multitude of tidiness. Absolutely sins. not. So I'm just thinking about dressing the two desks that we have in this room with throws down the back so you can, you can't you know, those really kind of weird yeah. old paisley type throws that like, you'd have as a student. Or something that looks like it came from a bazaar in Marrakesh. When we went to Morocco, when I was 19 with three friends and had a very bad experience, we, we went to a bazaar, not a bizarre, bazaar, and bought some rugs, a suit, in fact, probably a suit, um, and bought some rugs that we didn't really want for prices that we thought were, we'd done a lot of haggling, but in retrospect, they, they would have started 400 times higher than, than they ought to have done. Was there a slightly effect gentleman saying, suit you, sir, suit you, sir, throughout no, there was the entire not. bartering process? It, it was simultaneously quite, and I'm not saying for a minute this is this is true of all Moroccans, but these particular individuals were, were both very friendly and quite threatening. To this, and I, I, I'm not sure it would have been possible to leave at any point yes. without come in, a rug. Come in, come in, come in! Don't leave! Don't leave! Don't leave! Don't leave! Yeah, and it just it, there was just tea constantly, but it was tea wielded as a weapon. <laughs> it was as though you can't kind of you can't leave if you're drinking tea. Although ironically, drinking a lot of tea makes me need the toilet. Um, the so I'd have to leave more frequently. But we got these rugs and we carted them. That was like the the end of the first week of a month long trip around Europe, interrailing, and we can't. I carried a rug from Morocco to the Czech Republic and on to Amsterdam and then home with various stop-off points in between. And then basically never used it. It was just like, I don't need this very small rug. It was, I mean, it is, I don't know where it is now, but that's the end it, of my story. It's paid dividends. It's podcast content now. It was worth the investment this, this half proof, a lifetime ago. This is proof actually that literally everything is content that you can leverage. I, mean, I, I could get a job being a, a columnist for a broadsheet newspaper, just choosing certain aspects of my life and writing about them for money. Um, it's a noble way to, to earn a living. Some, some of that is already true. Also providing content is this in front of me, which is the email detailing the weekly sales for the London Live Show. Mm. Uh, okay. It is an email that makes me very competitive with myself of the previous week. And therefore, in an attempt to beat last week's figure, I've decided that we should once again dedicate the people are paying attention to this part, at least section of the pod, to reminding everyone they should all come to the Courtyard Theatre in Shoreditch on Thursday the 16th of December to celebrate our fifth anniversary. You can get tickets for SPM Live in London at myticket.co.uk. Search for set piece menu or, and this is much easier, follow the links pinned to the top of our social feeds or, and this is also much easier, it's in the blurb for the very podcast you just clicked on. So click back, click on that, spend your money, and then come back and listen again. Uh, tickets are £22.50 plus booking fee. You will not only be getting a live recording of a podcast that everyone will eventually hear, you will also be getting the nebulously titled other stuff that will not be broadcast. Um, 
I think, should we call it premium value stuff? Mm. Well, exotic that, content. Exotic content. The, the swears, kind of, basically. The kind I, of stuff no, that a Moroccan souk would try and entice you into a shop for. There's, there's a lot more, you know, if people are worried, there's, there's more anecdotes where that, that Moroccan one came from. <laughs> the, um, do we not refer to it all as the, the Holly Oats After Dark section? Is that not the it, traditional set-piece menu thing? Yeah, it will be called After Dark, I would imagine. I will not need a sensor beep for that, frankly, which is good. Uh, although everything contained within Chinch's Soccer Stories After Dark or Hollyoaks After Dark, depending on which is more engaging for our audience and their age, um, it might have to go through the Can I Tell This Story in 2021 filter, which unfortunately some of Chinch's have been through on the podcast while recording that we have immediately had to stop and ask them to find a new one. Uh, there will also be a live performance of the latest Jack Reachcliffe oeuvre. Uh, we can reveal there will be part that will be played by an audience member on the night. Uh, so for that reason, if no other, head to myticket.co.uk and search for Set Piece Menu and join us at our special live show in London to celebrate our fifth anniversary. It's on Thursday the 16th of December. That is myticket.co.uk or click on the links in the blurb or on our social media. This is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, often late, Rory Smith, never early, until today. Uh, Rory, would you like to explain why you were two hours early for the recording of this week's podcast? I thought the Zoom was at 10 o'clock. And this is not, this is not that... a great way to start the podcast. That is two really boring stories I've told. One, <laughs> one quite long, one very short. Well, the uh, reason but... it was 12 o'clock, Rory, I'll bail mm. you out here, is that Mike Bosch, as he's called in uh, the contacts in our phones, the man who comes to fix our washing machine, mm. uh, was here fixing our washing machine for... At least the third time, it's starting to feel as though we should just get a new washing machine. You but need a Mike, Mike Hotpoint instead. <laughs> did an excellent job. The interesting, isn't it, that Steve's taking the opportunity to just to remind everybody that he's got a Bosch. Well, <laughs> that would be a brag if it hadn't been fixed three times. Have you tried a Neff? Things aren't going that well. But they're made in the same I mean, place. They're going Neff- Bosch well, but they're not going Neff well. Neff are cheaper, and they're made in the same place by the same people. Like, interesting fact, diesel jeans and Jack and Jones jeans. Exactly the same things. Made in the same places. It's all marketing. You're being marketed at. Goes to app, buys Jack and Jones jeans. <laughs> Goes to app and finds out what Jack and Jones is. It's a uh, brand It's a brand that I think Chinch would probably wear. Well, Chinch obviously feels that he contributed enough for two shows last week, so isn't with us today. Um, but he will be back next week. Do you think we've got a problem now that Chinch, because he got a few laughs mm. out of the live audience, now doesn't feel as though there's enough ambient appreciation of his contributions on a Zoom call and we won't see him now until the 16th of December <laughs> at the Courtyard Theatre in Shoreditch? Do we feel that we've accidentally launched Chinch into a, like a, a third phase of his career and he's going to end up sort of going into, into stand-up? That he's, he's off somewhere honing his tight five. Is that well, the problem? He didn't take his footballing career particularly seriously. He's taking his broadcasting career a lot more seriously. So on that trajectory, he's going to be, yeah, he's going to be really working on that tight five. Although it had to be a tight five for the broadcast audience after I did some severe edits. And then Steve tightened it to even more, uh, like what, four and a half when it went out on YouTube. So he needs to work on it. I, I've had some some positive reviews of the um, the Jane Austen Mitt McCarthy crossover though from my cousin in law Simon in particular who enjoyed the segment very much. Well, in the absence of Chinch and a soccer story, later we will uh, be hearing some of that uh, some of that feedback. Most of it positive. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 all, no, all of it, all of it positive. Um, the food is 
Well, it's not quite lunchtime yet, but I, I had noticed as I went to get my pre-pod coffee that Katie somewhat stupidly left an unopened packet of Viennese whirls lying around on the side. And that packet is neither no longer unopened or anywhere close to full. I think it had nine biscuits in previously. It has five. Why are you eating biscuits from the 1950s? <laughs> they, well, because the biscuits in the 1950s had an awful lot of sugar in are in, and in, are incredibly tasty. I don't think I've ever eaten a Viennese whirl. And you, being a biscuit lover, have never partaken of it. Yeah, a... no, no, I've never. I don't think I've ever had a Viennese whirl. They're What's the kind of they're the kind of ones that you buy in the Fusion Deli on Lapwing Lane as well. So it's okay. not just your bog standard run of the mill Mister Kipling Viennese whirls. It's I'm interested. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. You're, you're interested, Rory, but they're Viennese whirls, and yes, very progressive politically and global in in thought and mind and outlook. But in terms of biscuits, a massive xenophobe. So you'll be not having any of those Viennese whirls. Um, the football is Chinch. <laughs> even from his retreat in Portugal, would be able to tell you, it is this. Is international football actually more exciting than we thought? The teams that are in the process of successfully completing their qualifying campaigns for the World Cup may well be familiar when all is said and done, but in the saying and the doing, has there been more of a sense of jeopardy than we've come to expect? And furthermore, is that more jeopardy than we find in any other football at the elite level? That is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast via setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Nick Adams has got in touch with his perspective on the conversation we had on last week's live show, not about Jane Austen, but about history. Distinguished gentlemen, he writes, thank you for the Live from Manchester programme. I wanted to address the larger issues you discussed around the representation of the history of football, which isn't the only area of modern life that does a poor job of it. Business history is a thriving field of academic study, but gaining access to a corporation's archives is not easy and often comes with restrictions. Corporations happily toss out what they think of as superseded material. They may have great achievements that transform modern life, or they may have things they want to cover up and hide, but for the most part, we will never know. I work in the field of architectural studies, and often enough, I've heard senior management say in response to my queries, we're not a museum or we're not an archive, you know. To begin with, business, industry, architecture and football are all focused on the future and they do not want historic mistakes poured over. Let's read the history of Bob Bradley at Swansea, Ronald Koeman at Barcelona, Paul Jewell at Derby, Chinch would read that, Jim Fallon at Dumbarton, I am admittedly Googling now, but you cannot tell effective engaging history unless you follow the bad as well as the good. Otherwise, it is just one achievement after another. There is little incentive for clubs to tell the story of their mistakes and that probably won't change. Independent agents like museums, journalists and others need to fill that gap. Thank you for raising interesting issues that have given me at least much to think about. That is from Nick Adams in New York. Now, we do have a kind of a, a buffalo threshold of, of having, I think, three things of consequence read out um, on the podcast. I think Nick may well have blasted through that uh, particular threshold quite a while ago. So Nick, Nick Adams in New York with, I remember from the uh, live, it's not live show, when we did it on Zoom, I think he was one of those people who had the perfect Zoom background. So, Rory, revisit that, check it out, and then line every angle you have behind you with books. No, I'm, in, I, I'm enjoying... I think this is a more modern take on, on the Zoom background. I think the book thing is, is completely overdone. Like, we've all, we've all read books. Well done. What, you know, great. And also, you can't, you can't make out what the individual books are. I, I've been doing Zooms for, like, a year and a half with just loads of copies of Mr. behind me, and no one's bought any. <laughs> I had my royalty statements with you the other day. It's about three books. It's pathetic. And they're all cut price. The royalty statements for authors come through and you get full price sales, none. Cut <laughs> price bargain bin, 73 or something. And it's it's 
disheartening. So, uh, well done, Nick. I'm not having books in my background. I'm going with these angles. That's my. That's what I'm all about. Uh, Nick has, is so Nick has struck on something there that we don't just need a hall of fame. We need a hall of shame to to counteract that and make sure that we're not forgetting the the Vinnie Joneses and the Mark Dennises of the world. Uh, I would love to spend quite a long time talking about Mark Dennis's hair, but um, that is not for now. Brendan Lyman has got in touch with an email that does two things. It mentions American football, but also adds to the part of the debate on SBM 250, the live show last week, which mentioned American football. Dear Lee Corso, Kirk Herbstreet, Desmond Howard and Reese Davis, uh, that they are from ESPN's College Game Day. I'm sure you'll all know. Uh, first time writer, and may I say that it is a wonderful podcast, well deserving of many awards. But in lieu of that, know that you're number one in my heart. Yes, we have once again been nominated for the SA, FSA uh, Podcast of the Year Award, and once again, we will not win. Please excuse the Americanness of this correspondence, but as an American, I cannot help but feel there is a strong comparison that is often overlooked by fans of both football and American college football in the similarity of their two respective sports. As a fan of both, I've come to notice that the topic of the week on the pod could easily be done about American college football as well. The pageantry, social identity, rivalry, tribalism and ruinous, if not unsurprising, role of money in the two sports are, well, very similar. We also have the beauty and tradition of the game at the local level, played on a Saturday afternoon with schools of all sizes, skill levels and fan bases. While I understand the focus of many to compare professional sports against other professional sports, I would argue that American college football is the American sport playing the societal role in the US that football plays in England. Well, that's enough blathering from a yank on a strictly American sport. Love the pod. Please come to America for a live show. Cheers, Brendan Lyman, who is in Richmond, Virginia. Yes, of course you will, Brendan. You'll have to pay. I'd love to do a live show in Richmond, Virginia. I doubt we'd have much of an audience, to be fair. It would probably be just one person, but it, I'd love to I'd love to go. Um, I've always, I've had an idea for a book for a long time, one of these books that I'll, I, I want to write, but we'll never get around to. And if I ever did, if I would find it extremely difficult. Um, <laughs> about why like the atmosphere around american sport and british sport or european sport are different so it does feel to me that you get a very different kind of bespoke environment in each sport but i do think that the i've always envisaged that college football would be the if i was for example if anyone wants to pay me to do this to go around america watching american sports for a year to try and work out why things are different that college football would be the final chapter to that is the one that i think is most like soccer the way that you're, I think the way that Americans experience college football is the, is, is the, the equivalent of how we, we experience professional football. I think the, the, the ardent nature of the way that American college football fans support their team is certainly, as Brendan said, um, familiar to us as watchers of English league football. Finally, Jack Gunther has this, which will leave us considerably schooled. So, pens and paper out, gentlemen. Oh, no. Here we go. Okay, okay. Let's Dear Set Piece Menu, SPM 250 was my favourite episode yet of your reliably excellent podcast. I enjoyed it so much, I may need to buy a second Trained by Joao t-shirt at tpublic.com. Shameless. I know. Indeed, anybody can head to tpublic.com and buy merch. I am in the fourth year of a PhD in history, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about football and history. So I was thrilled to hear you for tackle the subject. The history of football is not my area of expertise, but my dissertation is in German political and economic history from circa 1890 to circa 1960. And sometimes I want to think about something a bit lighter, if that's okay. I'm sure you'll understand. The conversation on SPM 250 touched on three different types of history. And I think the topic of how good football is at doing its own history makes more sense if we divide it into those types. They're not entirely mutually exclusive from each other, 
other, but they are basically antiquarian history, narrative history, and disciplinary history, as in history as a discipline practiced by proper professionals. When Rory asks who invented the false nine, or one fan turns to another and says, who was the best jobbing left back in England in the 1990s? Those are examples of antiquarian history. It is a mode of approaching the past that focuses on collecting as much information as possible and taking pleasure in having collected it, rather than having arranged it in a certain way. It's very common among hobbyists of all stripes, of which football fans are arch examples. Antiquarian history lends itself to the club game, where it can thrive because of, not despite, tribalism. Fans prove themselves by collecting nuggets of information about their club's past to demonstrate their fandom. See the Colin Bell example at Manchester City that Rory mentioned. But antiquarian history, because it's principally concerned with collecting, isn't always emotionally or intellectually satisfying. For that, people want their histories arranged in a certain way. Which brings me to what we'll call narrative history. A lot of the conversations circle the lack of a coherent narrative of football's history. This is the history that tells us who we are, or who we want to think we are. That's why tribalism challenges a narrative history, because a satisfying narrative will differ among fans of different clubs. Where narrative history thrives, though, is national histories. When Rory talks about the individuals through which we sometimes tell a history of the game, Charlton, Best, Lampard, Gerrard, Terry, well, they're all based in England, and with one exception, all English. The Three Lions do have a coherent history that most fans are familiar with, one of success in 66 and decades of dark ages, a flirtation with glory in 96, unfulfilled promise in the early 2000s, and finally unsatisfying success under Gareth Southgate. It makes sense that these histories would exist for the national game because modern history began in the 19th century as a nation-building, even nationalist enterprise. It told a story of a collective and in doing so created that collective. It's history arranged in a way that tends towards coherence so it's more emotionally satisfying than antiquarian history. But the trade-off is that these narratives deliver a neat story over a nuanced one and that they lose value very quickly when the coherent story the collective wants has changed or when facts puncture the story. The final type of history is that which starts with those facts and explains the how and the why of change over time. It's not just about collecting nuggets of fact, nor just about telling a story that is satisfyingly coherent. It begins with a historical problem and tries to explain it. This third history is what professional historians do. Professional here meaning that they have to conform to certain disciplinary standards, not that they're better or worse than, say, a journalist who writes a book about the past, full price or not. The difference isn't the quality, it's the stance towards the past and what the past is for. Football is pretty bad at this type of history, but so is literally everyone. And I mean literally, literally. Even professional historians constantly get things wildly wrong, which is good for me, otherwise my work would be useless. So, is football bad at doing history? By professional standards, yes it is. But it's no worse than, oh I don't know, whole nation states. The antiquarianism, the nostalgia, the debates about Maradona or Messi, the remembrance of a tragic plane crash in 1958 by someone born in 1995 in an entirely different country, in football, there is an enormous appetite for the past. Are coherent narratives sometimes dangerous? Heck yeah! Especially when they leave facts or whole groups of people out. Is antiquarianism intellectually equivalent to filling out a World Cup sticker book? Also probably yes. And have professional historians mostly neglected one of the major cultural phenomena of the 20th century? No question. But compared to all the other areas in which one might think about the past, from politics to culture, football is actually doing pretty darn well. Not least because of superb podcasts like SPM. Praise at the beginning and at the end to apologise for the long email. So go to the live show on December the 16th. Truly shameless, says Jack Gunther. Now, usually when somebody sends a long email, I sub-edit to within an inch of its life. 
That I could not, because I felt there was value throughout. Thank you, Jack. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You might have to forward that email to me, Hugh, not because of all the, the praise and the compliments, but because I might need to go over the content for a, a second time. I think there's, there's quite a lot to absorb there. I enjoyed all of it apart from the dig. <laughs> okay. I'm glad that's <laughs> that the part was, that you that was, that was the bit that Hugh added. But I do wonder to what extent the fact that there's a lot of... Football gets a lot of first drafts of history, which is there's so much journalism around it. And I wonder if that plays a part in preventing true there's maybe too many journalists writing football history that's probably right but then that's not necessarily the journalist's fault because maybe the historians might like to you know pull their fingers out and do it but one of the many excellent points made by jack gunther thank you jack and uh, now we've uh, often talked down international football on this podcast mainly because we enjoy devaluing the achievement of winning i don't know say up to seven caps for a person's country, but also to question the venerated way in which the phrase international level is used, or even just to make it clear, it does not represent the elite anymore, as the Champions League has the best players, coaches, tactical development, and all of that. However, it has occurred to us, well, Stephen, that the introduction of the Nations League and the most recent World Cup qualifying campaign has shown us that international football may well have more of something than the best of the club game jeopardy as often as we've talked down international football we have also complained about the predictability that has taken over in a lot of europe's top leagues so even if the teams that reach qatar 2022 end up looking familiar has their journey there provided enough jeopardy to make the game at international level more exciting than we thought yeah this isn't about contradicting things that we've previously said more just looking at it from a, a slightly different perspective because whilst we have lamented that elite club football no longer has the unpredictability to go with the, the quality. We would like both. We can't have it. Does international football at least satisfy some of those desires? Is it now the highest level of football available to us, which comes, if you like, in its purest form? Because I don't think it's fair anymore and has very quickly changed that trope about how international breaks just get in the way of the football that we really care about. Well, I know that remains true for a lot of people for whom their club is the most important thing maybe in their lives. But if you truly love the game, does international football now provide the greatest level of satisfaction in terms of the narratives, the jeopardy, the unpredictability, the opportunity for good decisions to be made that can transform a nation from being competitive at one level to perhaps being able to compete at a slightly higher level yes the depth of the depths of your resources are still incredibly important but unlike the elite level of the club game you can't buy your way out of previous mistakes you have to improvise you have to play the longer game and i think we're starting to see that now more and more we saw it during the Euro. Italy, you know, unless you are talking with the benefit of hindsight, not too many people fancied Italy to go all the way and win the European Championship, but they did. Spain were written off before the tournament, yet very nearly reached the final. England managed to put together a coherent campaign, even though they seemed to change what would have been their best path to plot through the competition in terms of tactically. So I, I think we're starting to see demonstrations that the club, the, the international game can satisfy us in ways that the club game perhaps no longer does at the very top level. 
I think there's a couple. There's there's a lot to unpack. There's, there's kind of two sides to the debate, aren't there? There's there's one that's about the nature of international football, and one that's about the nature of the club game. And they're probably they are probably separate, and they're subject to separate factors. I think there's two kind of biases we maybe should acknowledge. One is is that the weird perspective that being based in England has on how you view international football, because England qualifies qualify for everything so easily that it is understandable that, you know, we're recording this the day that England play San Marino. No one is pretending that's an interesting fixture. It is impossible for that to be an interesting fixture. fixture there is a debate to be had. It always amazes me that people shout it down so much as to whether a fixture like this should happen. You can believe it should happen and you can believe it shouldn't happen and both are perfectly valid views. But no one's pretending that, that England's journey to World Cup, 22, World Cup Qatar 2022 is anything other than a pretty dull cakewalk that that if you if you see international football through the prism of England it is boring there's no question i think if you look more broadly than that that's not the case and the other one the other thing i think we have to be slightly aware of is recency bias because this round of fixtures in europe and elsewhere to be fair are good there's lots and lots of interesting things happening you know you're starting to see teams qualify you're starting to see teams fall away uh, Alexander Mitrovic's goal for Serbia against Portugal on Sunday night. That is a that is a classic international moment. That is what eighty ninth ninetieth minute yeah. header away from home. Had everything finally poised. Home had to, to win to qualify. Underdog nation and quite an appealing underdog nation. I will apologise in advance to everybody for the the fact. I mean, I'm contractually obliged to think that Serbia will be a dark horse for the World Cup. They they <laughs> they won't be. They'll get eliminated in the groups because that's what Serbia do. But I will at some point write a piece about how Serbia are dark horses. Will they be the the equivalent of Turkey at Euro 2020? The, yeah, basically, there's certain countries that just have to be cast as dark horses by by pretentious hipster journalists, and Serbia's one, Turkey's the other. Croatia, we can't... I mean, we've lost Croatia because they got to a World Cup final, so there's nothing hipster about Croatia. Um, although, funny, if you, if you say that Croatia are good at football, people will still still call you a hipster, and you think, well, they, they, they were literally in the World Cup final three years ago. So what, it's like when people call you a hipster for, for covering, covering the Classico. It's literally the, the biggest game between two of the biggest teams in the world. It's, it's not hip, it's not niche. Anyway. I, um, I did Turkey quite a bit in the, in the Nations League and the European qualifiers ahead of the European Championship. So all those people that were predicting they would do well... I was like going back through my notes going, <laughs> I've seen loads of Turkey and they were distinctly average. But my confidence to make that point to anybody was completely shot by the sheer volume of people who said, Turkey are the dark horses. I was like, going back, what? I saw, the, I saw loads of their games. Well, hang horrible. on a minute. You've just, you've just done Croatia twice. So uh, are they going to be hipster again by the time oh, we get to 2020? I, I did just want to, I'll, I'll jump if, before Roy picks up again. I did want to jump in on the, the recency bias thing because... There is certainly a lot of truth to that. But four of the 10 European groups for World Cup qualifying have or are going down to a game on the final match day between the top two in the group to decide who wins it and goes directly to the Qatar World Cup and who has to go through the playoffs. There are another two groups to be decided. The one with Italy in. Italy and Switzerland are the top two. They don't play each other. But their, their respective games on the final day decide the outcome. And even England's group, even though Rory is right yeah. about England's group, England's group is going to go the distance, even if you know that's only to satisfy the mathematicians. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's all absolutely right. But I don't think it contradicts the idea of recency bias just because th- this round of international fixtures has been really good, no question. There's, 
you know, there's, there's days when you can't quite work out which game you want to watch. And that's, and it's not just Europe. There's, there's, I mean, Brazil have qualified. Argentina could qualify if they beat Brazil whenever they play Brazil. Ecuador are going well, but then there's the sort of four or five teams that could take that fourth South American slot. That's interesting. Africa, you see. Uruguay seen, could miss out, couldn't Uruguay they? could miss out. Um, although they don't, that doesn't conclude until March. Um, Africa, the there's been loads of kind of drama in the groups. Ghana, Ghana got top spot off, off South Africa by does it? Africa is the hardest place to qualify. Um, Ghana took top spot off the South Africans with a really really bad penalty the other day. I think Benin lost out on top spot to DR Congo in, in, the, in the last round of games. Like there's there's a lot of interesting stuff happening, but, but that think- that is purely because this is the end. This is where the jeopardy comes yeah. in. That this round of fixtures in international football is always quite good. Maybe not as good as this, but when things are being decided, it is interesting. That's natural, whether it's the final round of the champ- final round of group-, group games in the Champions League or the final round of World Cup qualifiers or whatever it might be. Effectively, what are straight shootout games are always interesting because the the jeopardy is high. And I think that's the thing that the nation, that's what makes the Nations League work, that you get a lot of meaningful games between teams of similar standards. That's why the Nations League has been a success. The flip side to it is, I saw this tweeted just today, funnily enough, Spain have eight games between now and the World Cup, two friendlies and six Nations League games. Those are not going to be interesting because it is the build-up to the World Cup. And the problem that the Nations League... I I like the Nations League as a tournament, but I think UEFA and the various other confederations who are running an equivalent need to be slightly conscious of of how much they do it, because I think one thing that is really important is clarity. You need that sense of, okay, what does this game mean? And we are now, although it's weirdly timed because it's in the winter, we are now in a World Cup build-up. And I do worry that the Nations League will just confuse things, and it will seem to be a phony war before the real business starts in the middle of November next year. So I I basically agree with the thesis that there is more jeopardy, more reliably in international football now than there is in in a lot of club football. But I do wonder to what what extent it's to do with, we we are comparing the final round of World Cup qualifiers when stuff is decided with game, game, game weeks 9, 10 and 11 of the Premier League. But to maybe offer an alternative contrast, UEFA would bite your hand off for the Champions League group stage to have the same level yes. of final round fixture drama as their European qualifiers for the World Cup has had in groups with more teams than yeah. Champions League groups. But this is that's the, that's the lesson, isn't it? That's the thing that... And we, we've touched on this before, so we're probably going to repeat ourselves. There's, there's this idea that people don't like international football because it's low quality, or they don't like the Champions, group, Champions League group stage because it's low quality, or they don't like this because it's bad, or they don't like Serie A or La Liga or Liga or whatever it might be, because it's, and the, the excuse is always, it is not as good as the Premier League. What that means is, I am not as emotionally invested in it as the Premier League because and this is like the 15th time I said this, we don't know what good football is. All the players we're watching are amazing at football. What we want is either nonsensical games that finish 7-5 or whatever, lots and lots of goals, lots and lots of goals, lots and lots of, you know, drama, or we want tension and jeopardy. And ultimately for all the competition organisers, the challenge is to work out how to have as many games as possible with jeopardy. And it's, I guess what's interesting to an extent is... Do we think that this round of fixtures, that how dramatic World Cup qualifying has been in Europe, if we just limit it, limit, limit it to Europe for now, do we think that is 
well, A, do we think it's more, more dramatic than normal? And B, is it a coincidence or is it something that is the start of a pattern? So, so yeah, this is this is the the section of the conversation which will lead us to the to the how has it happened and 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 th- therefore can it be repeated? Because if if it is a coincidence, is it coincidence because of the luck of the draw? And you've got two seeded teams, pot one, pot two, who are actually fairly well matched, and that's the reason why it's been good. Um, or has it just essentially been a complete? coincidence the vagaries of the way that international football has become unpredictable that we are celebrating what is the most recent example of it and but yet can it be repeated so that it isn't just the most recent example well there are things that have contributed to this that couldn't have been predicted are first the way that the nation's league has seemingly been a force for good and also the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has concertined things together in an unforeseen way, which has perhaps ramped up the the pressure on the games because they have been played in in a much shorter time frame than they would be usually. And that nations have had to, in several of the international breaks since international football returned in September 2020, they've had to play three competitive games during a break rather than two. Now, I'm not saying that should continue, but I wonder whether we should learn the lessons of the benefit of a of a tighter window for the qualifiers that has maybe intensified the competition and has given the likes of Serbia, who've come in with a bit of impetus that opportunity to outperform ultimately Portugal in the group stage. Yeah, I think we've also seen other examples. Hungary were expected to make life difficult for England and Poland in their group. And ultimately, maybe the pressure to do that has has taken its toll on them. I think I saw the same thing in the group that I covered. You mentioned it. I did the Croatia-Russia group throughout uh, World Cup qualifying. And certainly Slovakia coming into that were were thought to have been a potential top two finisher. And again, I think this is another example of the way that we're getting a bit of football in its purest form is that they have buckled under the expectancy that they could challenge Croatia and Russia, something that probably in the last round of qualifiers wouldn't have been anticipated. I, I wonder to what extent it's to do with I think Steve's right. I, I wonder if, if it's also benefited just from the fact that it's made it quicker. Yeah. That it's it, it it's been more possible to to get a handle on what's happening, even with the break for the Euros in the middle. That you, it's been easier. Maybe maybe it's particularly true after the summer, where we've had international breaks, September, October, November, and it's brought it all to a crescendo. Whereas ordinarily the, i suppose you would get a version of that but it would have dragged on for like a year beforehand mm. so maybe not i want to advocate for anything that arsene vendor is suggesting but maybe there is something in, in that fifa suggestion of a concentrated international break mm. because it makes it much easier as a fan of football in general to think okay this is what is happening i can follow this narrative rather than hang on did they not draw with hungary in march is that bad or is that good i don't know yeah. and that i think has been a major impact in terms of making it more compelling to follow. From, from the football perspective, first of all, we should always remember World Cup qualifying is always a lot better than Euros qualifying because there's fewer spots. Same number of teams, fewer spots. Um, and also the playoff format this time around has added is, an extra layer yeah. of anxiety because rather than a situation... Because I, I did the what was a de facto decider, Russia-Croatia, in that you definitely got a sense that there was 
much greater pressure on that game over who finished first or second than there would mm. have been under previous playoff formats where Russia or Croatia would have been seeded in the playoffs. They would have had the advantage of home advantage in the second game. They would have been able to feel fairly confident that whoever they were play- whoever they got in their playoff, they would get past. Now, well, there's three pathways, three possible routes to qualification. You've got to play a semi-final and a final. And there's a lot more uncertainty and a lot more unpredictability about whether Russia will get through that. And so then- it felt like it, it, it really did feel like an all or nothing occasion in split and they're all one leg yeah which which makes it much more random essentially so you know russia could get i don't know greece or somebody probably not greece they're probably not in it wales and the you know in, even if it's in st petersburg or moscow you know aaron ramsey could nick one and that's yeah. that's russia done and that that those fixtures in march will be incredibly dramatic they're actually a little touch of of africa african qualifi- qualifying where you end up with 10 group winners and home and away games to determine who qualifies, which I always think seems really harsh. It's a really harsh way, a slightly overly arbitrary way to work out Africa's five qualifiers for the World Cup. But in Europe's context where you don't get however many teams going through initially, it's probably all right. It probably works, to be honest. The the broader footballing r- rationale behind it, I think, Steve's right, the Nations League has maybe helped to raise standards. It's helped to give teams a sense of belief and momentum. It's shaken up the seedings a little bit, which has helped. Part of it is just the natural ebb and flow of, of those mid-sized nations. So I'm not sure whether, whether we're going to run it yet because it'll depend on what happens. But I've been working on a story about Norway, which initially was going to be kind of Norway's return to to the World Cup after after 20, well, 22, 24 years. But now might be about, depending on what happens in Amsterdam, might be about, and in Montenegro, in fact, uh, might be about kind of the prospect of a World Cup without Erling Haaland, which would seem to be, something that from what the people I've spoken to uh, Norway as a country is prepared to accept uh, and I think the rest of the world might miss a bit more than the, the Norwegians understand that this that this could happen they're used to not qualifying for tournaments the rest of the world I think will miss a World Cup without Erling Haaland it's well, possible the, rest of the world is used to seeing the best players at a World Cup yeah exactly or and just seeing the best players when they want to yeah, that was probably that's probably it. In fact, the, the the idea that and that's that's one of those those arbitrary things. This was part of the conversation about the Super League that if you characterise football as entertainment, then you probably should take a little bit of the the arbitrariness out of it. That it it doesn't make sense if you were casting WrestleMania, you wouldn't be like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to take one of the biggest stars and just not not have them there. You that would be ridiculous. And it is if you think of football purely as entertainment, then it's insane that there'd be a World Cup without Erling Haaland. That, that Would it Norway... be more ridiculous than WrestleMania? <laughs> nothing. There's nothing ridiculous about WrestleMania. Um, it's a it's a triumph. Anyway, can we can we the... do footballers, current footballers as wrestlers? No, because that's too <laughs> that's too close to talk sport banter. We don't do that. We're better than that. Um, but in in a, in a broadly footballing sense, I think that there's probably three currents that have collided. One is that. Those, those medium-sized countries always ebb and flow. So Norway are good now and Slovakia aren't. That happens because they're not big enough to sustain a generation every single... You know, they're not going to have a good team every year. It's just how it works. So, yeah, the, the Slovakians and the Hungarians have struggled a bit this time around, but the Hungarians did really well in qualifying for the, for the Euros. So it, it kind of happens. And the seedings reflect that, that if, if a country like Hungary gets a tough group, then, then, then they, might be, they might struggle. But if they get a slightly easy one, then they might be all right. Same with places like Greece. The second is that for um, for those countries, those medium-sized countries, you only need 
not 11 players, but maybe 15, 16 players to be, to put a decent squad together and to be able to to compete. And I think more of those countries are able to do that now than before. And that is definitely a pattern that if you look at countries like Austria or particularly in the West, to be honest, I mean, Luxembourg, I mean, the, I don't know what, what the result the other day did to change it, but for a long time, the Irish have been below Luxembourg in, in the table. But if you look at, you know, countries, the Scandinavian countries, uh, yeah, the Greeks, the Austrians, to an extent, places like Hungary, um, Slovakia, they are able pretty consistently to name 15, 16 players who are playing in the top eight leagues in Europe. And ultimately, that will give them a chance if they've got a decent coach and they've got a decent idea and those players all roughly dovetail together. So the Scots, the problem obviously is the Scots have got, you know, half a dozen, not even that, four or five world-class performers, but two of them are left back. So that's not, you don't need that. That's bad. You want to have four or five world-class players one right back, one left back, couple of midfielders, couple of strikers, that'll do you. Um, you don't need all your best players to play in the same position. But because of the advances in, in coaching and sports science and tactics, just the way that the ideas spread in football, because the way that best practices is kind of diffused around football, it's relatively easy now for well-organised middle-tier middle nations to compete with the big countries. And the third thing that I think is probably relevant is that quite a few of the bigger countries aren't in their best moment. So Spain have been through a transition. They look very different now to how they looked at the start. Um, the Germans and the English obviously have have sailed through, and the Belgians as well. But you know the French have dropped a load, a load of points to make that group a bit more complicated than it really needed to be. The Italians have been a bit funny. They they have although they're obviously the European champions now, but at the start of qualification they they were still a work in progress. There's a few of the bigger countries, the top seeds who have not been at the height of their powers. Portugal, obviously, the other one. And I think those three things have combined to make it a more dynamic qualification process than you might normally expect. So the challenge will be to learn from that and see if there's any way that we can man manufacture that going forward and not return to a qualifying campaign that spreads over 18 months and ultimately enables the elite nations to have enough time and keep players fit enough to to navigate a route through it i know you you've looked at some of the middling nations rory you don't necessarily ever have to tip your toe into the ones much further down the pecking order like i do more occasionally than you might imagine but you mentioned Luxembourg, who who did ultimately finish below the Republic of Ireland in that group. But they're one, the Nations League for them. They, they are definitely the the pin-up nation for for that competition because they've jumped out of the they were well outside the world's top one hundred uh, before the sort of Nations League came into certainly into into the thought process, and they realised the potential for that, and they're now bouncing around in the sort of top eighty ninety nations in the world. Malta, who were in that Croatia group that I've, I've been doing over the last few months. Another really interesting example that they won a couple of games in the Nations League most recently. Coming into the final round of fixtures in World Cup qualifying, they'd had their best ever World Cup qualifying campaign. Only five points, but that's still an achievement for them. And they played Croatia in their penultimate game, had a week to prepare for it. And they came into it clearly with the belief that they could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Croatia, that they could play football against Croatia because they suddenly had confidence. They made a load of defensive mistakes and got whooped well and truly. Modric masterclass tore them apart in the first half. But 
I felt that that was encouraging to see that a nation outside of the world's top 180 was gaining confidence that actually they thought on our day, we might be able to go up against one of the very best and not only get a result, but get a result playing football nicely. There has always been in international football the, the the sense that you can be greater than the sum of your parts because of the national pride that either you instinctively have or a manager, for example, is is able to cultivate within you. And they they are sometimes the best international managers who are able to do that, not necessarily just the best uh, tacticians. But we we start this conversation saying that we we tend to do down international football because it isn't it isn't the best anymore. Might never have been, probably was, but isn't the best anymore. But isn't it? in accepting that it's not the best the reason behind why it might be more exciting because the whole thing about club football is that you have the best practitioners the players the coaches they are attempting to assert as much control over not only what they do but therefore from a club level and the amount of money that there is and the amount of money they're able to spend control over everything about the getting the best players about getting the best coaches to institute control on the football field as well controlling the results and your future but those two things are are they not inextricably linked and accepting that there is less control in international football. You have less time with the players. You have players who aren't quite as good. You are forced into who you can have in your team. Not necessarily the best coaches either because they are attracted more by club football and the day-to-day involvement with players and all those things that are trotted out endlessly. In accepting that and realising that international football isn't good because of the lack of control, that's exactly the same reason why there is an element of unpredictability. It, the the interests of the people involved at the absolute top level of the club game is in removing as much jeopardy as possible from football that's what they want they want um they want guarantees they want they want to do everything they can to smooth out whatever rough edges there are so that there are no obstacles in their road so if you look which, at which is why manchester united are being criticized for doing exactly what manchester united have every desire to do which is to take out the fact that their financial success might be based on things that they cannot control and therefore they control their financial success by having it based on having noodle partners in Southeast Asia. It's why you get this this inherent tension between Manchester United, the football team, which mm. is quite bad for an elite football team. They're, they're, not, they're not that good or they're not as good as they should be. And Manchester United, the story, which is amazing. This is, this is the best. Man United have perfected. I, I wrote about this a while ago. I've probably said it before. I am ultimately a man of very few notes. But if you, if you conceive of Man United as an, as a, as an, an entertainment platform that wants to, that is competing for eyeballs with, I don't know, Netflix, which is the, the one they all seem to bang on about, um, then this is exactly what you need with Man United. This is exactly, they are perf- They are the perfect vehicle for football as content. But, but it's not because, just us saying that, it's them doing it. I don't it's, know if they're doing not, it on purpose. But the, well, well, let's say they are, it would make sense based on those, those controllables. Yeah, but that's a, that's a bit conspiracy theory, isn't it? That's a bit, that, that's trying to take, finding comfort in, in the explicable because the inexplicable is much more terrifying so the Hugh's the, spending I, a lot I, more time at home now he's got uh, he's, he's got a child so there's all sorts of things he's being exposed to on Hugh, social media that you wouldn't previously have absorbed Hugh has gone full QAnon Solskjaer is Q the um the, I, I thought it was a more tangible point that genuinely that, that their desire from a financial financial success point of view is to finish in the top four everything everything outside of football and what happens on the pitch they can control they can sign Ronaldo to make sure that that brings with it everything that has come with Ronaldo which is of 
massive value to them in that on that platform it might be of less value to the team athletically and yet that is not the priority i don't think that's a conspiracy theory that is a genuinely a, that is reason the reason why the success story has been what it is because they have focused on controlling what they can control and also deciding what success is based on that yeah, to an extent, they're not controlling everything they can tr control because they could appoint a competent sporting director and a good manager, and then they could have, they could they could control things as much as Man City or Chelsea or whoever do because they have just as much money in real terms. They don't. They might not have the the access to the to funds as deep as the state of Saudi Arabia. Sorry, not them. Definitely not them. PIF or the state of Abu Dhabi. Sorry, not them. Sheikh Mansour is definitely a private individual. Abu Dhabi United Group. Yeah, them. But, it's just, but the, but the he point just remains. grew up idolising Georgie Kinkadze. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the point remains, isn't it? That they, they don't do that because they yeah, don't prioritise that. No, no, no. They, they, they don't do that because then they've got the wrong people making decisions and therefore they make bad decisions. Man United they could, could get those right people. Yeah, but the people who are there already don't want to lose yeah. their jobs to those right people and they don't want to see <laughs> control. So it's, it's not... Incompetence is always a much more likely explanation for anything than conspiracy. The... But yes, I, I take your point that in theory you could make the case that what Man United are doing is almost willfully introducing a degree of jeopardy into their existence because it's entertaining. I think the, the, the key point with international compared to the club game is that in the club game there are a set of, say, 12 teams broadly whose interest it is to remove all jeopardy from the equation as much as they can. So they go and hire the best manager, they sign the best players, they take the best players away from their rivals, they guarantee themselves success. And I think we are starting to feel across football, and we've looked at it from a British perspective in Germany and Spain, and to an extent France, um, but particularly in fact the Bundesliga for a long time and said, oh, it's so predictable, blah, blah, blah. The Premier League is just as predictable, it's just, it's just predictable in a slightly different way. We are seeing across those major leagues and in fact, in Leeds beneath that, because you look at positions of teams like Ajax and Club Bruges in, in, in the Benelux, um, they're just as dominant. The We are seeing the removal of jeopardy across the board at the elite level at the, in terms of who wins titles, who finishes in Champions League places. What where, where you are completely right, Hugh, is that in international football, there are fewer controllables because you are limited by who you can call up. You're limited by who will be your manager. You're limited by what you can do in the five days that you have your players. And that's exactly the reason which, why it's not as good footballing-wise. But, but it's but, just but, as entertaining in terms of jeopardy. And what we yeah. ultimately want as fans is jeopardy. It's jeopardy. Com com competition. It doesn't matter that it's the best people doing the best exactly. things all the time. Because it needs to be because the best people doing the best things, and this is this sounds Steve's desperately trying to make a point. I really want to stop him. The, the... Well, no, because I don't. You're actually you are making my argument for me. You, I, I don't need to say anything because you two have done it. You've talked. You've talked yourselves round to oh club football. There's lots of awful, grubby things about it, and uh, it's not ideal, really, is it? Because we know what's going to happen. Whereas international football is providing us with the counterpoint. Because yeah, it's not to say there's no grubbiness about with international football. We've got jingoism, racism. It keeps rearing its head in a, in a really obvious way in some of those environments. But that they are having to, the, the coaches are having to innovate. Tactically, it's intriguing. And you now see, you've seen it with England and Italy and Spain recently and Belgium already were doing it. This idea of building a club ethos at international level 
that get that's got rid of some of those divisions which were impacting national teams. And funnily enough, it seems to me as though Germany are, are trailing a little bit behind in this regard, that they have built structures without the depth of resources at, at the elite clubs and without the ability that the elite clubs have of being able to correct mistakes or buy replacements for bits of the machine that aren't working. They're having to work with what they've got and they're having to build team mentalities in a much smaller window of opportunity than their club head coach equivalents get. And that makes it interesting. And it also enables those who can be a little bit canny to develop something that is greater than the sum of its parts. And Belgium are the best example of that. Belgium are the top-ranked side in the world and have been for the last three and a half years. Yet the Belgian league is only the 13th highest ranked in Europe. So they, yes, they do have an unbelievable quality of, of players currently, but they are using those resources to the best of their possible capabilities. So if restrictions mean more competition because people aren't able to disregard all those things that they could potentially control in club football, this is the American friends will be shouting at us that that's how the American system works. Salary caps, salary caps introduced into club football would provide the same restriction and force managers with their players and clubs with their restricted salary caps to have to innovate in a way that might make a level more level playing field and therefore something more akin to in international football because of those very restrictions that might make it more entertaining for us. Yeah, but it, that's un ultimately quite unrealistic because the big clubs will never vote for it and the little clubs probably won't vote for it either because they, they want to kind of reserve the right to, to overspend if necessary. They would, they would see that as an attempt to put them in a box and keep them there. The, you, that that the, sadly, princi the principle is, remains. Doesn't the, it? Principle, the principle, the principle holds completely. Yeah, that you need to 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 restore jeopardy to club football. You need to find some artificial method, an artificial instrument for doing it, because it won't appear organically. And the the only thing you can really do is some sort of financial regulation that involves salary caps or spending caps. There's no, there's not really any other. You need to stop the proliferation of acquisition. Basically, you need to stop clubs being able to get all of the best players and redistribute wealth in terms of talent as much as in terms of money. That's what you need. If, say Man City, Man City have got a squad of 20 players or Chelsea have got a squad of 20, 25 players. If you took the bottom five from both those clubs and Liverpool and Man United and redistributed them to teams in the Premier League, then there would be much more competitive balance. Ultimately, that there would be more jeopardy in the in the league. If you have a, a structure whereby the best twelve clubs can have all, literally all of the best players, so that to the extent that if you know a player comes through who who breaks that breaks that golden rule, Man City don't buy him for a hundred million quid, then you you are not going to have true jeopardy. Um, and you can you you probably can't have the level of jeopardy that we've got in this round of international fixtures in every round of a league game of league games because the league structure mitigates against it but you can certainly have more jeopardy than we currently have in club football in the absence of chinch as mentioned before and therefore a soccer story instead we will reflect upon last week's contribution from our former england international firstly the football museum still isn't interested in his match-worn shirt so that's uh, an update on that situation uh, secondly his out of context offering with a twist uh, we have a couple of emails the first has the title awkward austin and begins thusly 
as I'm sure Jane Austen wrote. Dear Darcy, Bingley, Wickham and Collins. Firstly, Hugh, no hard feelings about mispronouncing my last name. Nobody gets it right on the first attempt. Now, this is from Rebecca and her surname is C-H-A-C-H-K-E-S. Would anybody like to have a go? Church keys. Church keys, Stephen? C-H-A-C-H-K-E-S. Mind you, I had a friend at I had a friend at school whose surname was spelled J A C Q U E S, which is phonetically reads like Jacques, but he was Jakes. So maybe this is Chakes. Let's go with Chakes. Secondly, says Rebecca, love the podcast, pay the NYT subscription for the newsletter, binging my way through the back catalogue while simultaneously keeping up to date with the new episodes, etc. She says in a description of the perfect SPM uh, listener. Thirdly, I just need you all to know that I was walking to work during the inaugural reading of Out of Context Austin. And as a person who ardently admires and loves Jane Austen, I was properly howling with laughter the whole time. That took a turn none of you were expecting. So loudly, in fact, that the person walking in front of me turned around to, I assume, glare at the lunatic being so annoying at 6.45 in the morning. Said person was, as it turns out, my boss, who I then had to try to explain the whole situation to because we had made direct eye contact and couldn't pretend that we hadn't noticed each other. (laughs) We then couldn't quite figure out how to disengage from the whole encounter and ended up very awkwardly walking all the way to work next to each other, only speaking occasionally until we finally got to our building and went our separate ways. So thanks for that. All the best from New York City. Rebecca. That sounds really awkward and I can only apologise. That's a horrible situation to be in. That awkward silence, that who talks, do I talk, do you talk, what we didn't talk about, that's horrible. Yeah, that is nightmarish. Just when he thought Chinch reading Jane Austen as a a Reacher book couldn't get any more unsettling... (laughs) It reveals itself. And uh, also, Chris Orr, who is a buffalo, and therefore uh, there is extra weight to his email, the title of which is In Defence of Chinch. Dear Hugh Stephen Rory and the man of many voices, regarding SPM 250's critique of Chinch's supposed mispronunciation of the word C-A-P-R-I-C-E during his reach-alike reading from Chapter 34 of Jane Austen's Prejudice, Andy is correct, and the rest of you lot... Are wrong. Well, it was only Rory who said that it was Capris. While I cannot speak with any authority on the standard pronunciations of said word in the UK, Andy read the character of Elizabeth in an American accent. In American English, Caprice is pronounced exactly as Andy read it. Caprice. Attached are images from a pronouncing dictionary of American English, John S. Kenyon and Thomas A. Knott, Springfield, M.A., Merriam-Webster, 1953, detailing the standard pronunciation of the word in American English in the International Phonetic Alphabet. Since one might disparage Kenyon and Knott's work as an old-fashioned, classist and prescriptivist text used I, in I American... I do regularly. Do regularly. <laughs> you see, he got that out. He was getting in front of that one, isn't he? In American theatre schools of yesteryear, which it is, the same pronunciation is also demonstrated in any number of modern, popular and Descriptivist, descriptivist, this that is descriptivist, online dictionaries and pronunciation tools, e.g., Merriam-Webster, Macmillan Dictionary, Collins Dictionary, and the less authoritative Word R Us videos on YouTube. In fact, according to the online Cambridge Dictionary and many other online resources, Caprice is pronounced Caprice in both the UK and the US. I will admit, however, the highly authoritative Word Panda website offers 
Capris as the second of two possible UK pronunciations. Given he got his accent exactly right when pronouncing this particular word, apologies may be in order to the man I now think of as the Meryl Streep of football podcasts and co-commentary. And that's from Chris Orr in Chicago. Apologies are never due to Chinch. That's not how this works. Never. I have been run on stuff before. What was the, what's the word that I made up? Nostalgicising. Nostalgicising. I am prepared not- to accept that there exists in the world the possibility that I am wrong about stuff. I, but there, I, however, there is also, Rory, before, not, not to offend Chris and a large slice of our audience, but under any circumstances, regardless of the accent that Chinch was using, that we start to take American English as being the correct interpretation of English. Well, there's, there's a nice little, the, little nativist angle. <laughs> and the final key thing is, Chinch doesn't know that word. So and he, he doesn't know, know how meant. to do a very good American accent either. So it, he took a pot shot, and I think we shouldn't encourage that. We shouldn't encourage his sort of f- semi-functional Ill- illiteracy. And we should chide him when he doesn't know what words mean, rather than... He, and if that has to take the form of telling him they're pronounced what may, may or may not turn out to be the wrong way, then that's fine. Just the, the broader message is the important thing. And it's also important that I didn't uh, uh, bring up the uh, incorrect usage of the word crescendo by Rory earlier on in the main bulk of this podcast, given that he has done that incorrectly before, then corrected himself in a newsletter recently, and then got it wrong again today. I haven't said crescendo today. You have said crescendo today. Have I? Every time I hear it, bells and buzzes and whistles just go off in my head. I'm very much a descriptivist. It's just part of your uh, lexicon now, Rory. You don't even realise it. A descriptivitist. A descriptivist (laughs) is... A person who sees language as, as like a changing, I think this is right, a changing alive thing. That is not that what, what this is. That is not what this is. And I think that crescendo should be used however I meant, however <laughs> I used it before. I don't really remember saying it. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Also, and here are the plugs. Buy the merch, tpublic.com, and tickets for our London live show at myticket.co.uk. You can search for setpiece menu. Uh, in fact, you can uh, just go, as I mentioned, to the blurb in this podcast or indeed to our pinned tweets um, on either our personal or indeed our SPM twitter accounts please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Stephen and rory and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed that was a good subject that we did well there without chinch we have really reached a crescendo there at the end don't know what that means anymore yeah, because it's a completely incorrect usage the reaching it's not the destination it's the journey the crescendo is the journey we basically successfully talked about international football by excluding the one international footballer yeah. amongst us there's a lesson to be learned there. I mean, I think I, I feel that the podcast is intellectually more valid without Chinch, but much less entertaining. So I apologise to the listeners. Do you believe there was jeopardy in England nil, Saudi Arabia nil? Because it would be a bit of a stretch to suggest that his input on that particular item would have been nothing short of biased. Did, what was the biggest game he played in terms of the stakes? He played Did in the qualifiers, didn't he, against uh, Bulgaria, Sweden? Moldova. Moldova. Right, he doesn't actually it. talk about Sweden very often. Just playing Sweden is actually quite a big thing. That's like a valid game. Did he play Sweden? Yes, they, I think it was a draw. He played Poland. Did he play Poland? He thought he played Poland. <sighs> I don't know. So it was Saudi Arabia, Cameroon, Sweden, Bulgaria, Moldova. Moldova Poland. Poland. Was Switzerland the other one? Should have been. Good group that. Bulgaria, Sweden, Switzerland, Poland. That's tough. Yeah. You know, you know when we were, we were supposed to know exactly how many games that he'd played? Uh, we mm. could probably, probably know seven of them internationally, really, but we don't. He'd be really upset.